Let's Talk Native is produced at the Eltian Studios on the Cataraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. No prayers, no buffalo speeches, and no spirituality shows. While this podcast does not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do take a tough look at history, oppression, and our survival. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Sego, and welcome to Let's Talk Native. I'm John Kane. I'm your host. You know, I got to ask the question. Can we fire the lobbyists yet? I mean, it, it is a... It is literally a billion-dollar enterprise, or, or industry, I should say. And now I'm just talking about Native people hiring lawyers and lobbyists and consultants to do one thing, interface with the federal government on our behalf. Well, I take it back. It's more than one thing. They actually refine our message for us because apparently we can't speak for ourselves. So they, they, they wordsmith our, our message, and then they deliver our message to who? Well, I mean, part of the reason I'm asking the question now is if we're going to have somebody like Deborah Halland, uh, who's who, who in all likelihood will be confirmed to the Interior Department. And I think there's at least two other native people who have been appointed to positions within the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs. And, and, and I think another native person in in some other like industry like or uh, um, energy or something like that. If there are going to be native people there in Washington, do we as native people have to have professional white people? craft our our message for us and then deliver that message for us as well we can't talk directly to native people and i'm asking this question i've never been a fan of of lobbyists i i just think it's a huge waste of money especially if you look at the idea of results i mean these guys market themselves as as the price you pay for access for one thing you know i've always viewed lobbyists as as having one function to hold the door for us. If that's what they really can do is grant us access, then they should grant us access. They, you know, open the door and we'll walk through and then we'll speak for ourselves. I think we are quite capable. You know, look, we, are, we aren't speaking pidgin English. We, we know what our issues are. And frankly, by the time, you know, these, these PR experts and these policy experts and, and, these, and these lobbyists take our message and, by, and from, the, from the moment that we tell them what we, how we view things and, the, and they take it to Washington, the message has changed. They've already whitewashed the whole thing. They've softened every, every aspect of, of, of our message that relates to sovereignty and control over our own lands. They, they turn us into, the, into you know, these submissive fools that are asking the federal government for something. And I'm going to tell you, you know, the, the biggest thing that I, that I expect out of the federal government is for them to do their job and, and to enforce their laws against their people. Most of the problems that we have in our territory isn't what we're doing to ourselves. And, and we have some of that. But most of it is, is the wrong application or the wrongful application of either state or federal laws on our territories. So whether we're talking about tax issues, whether we're talking about crime and punishment, whether we're talking about... Uh, the various things that the federal government's supposed to do, 
and, and I'm going to get into gaming, and, and, and it does re relate some of what I'm talking about directly to gaming, because I'll tell you one thing about gaming. That is what has created the coffers that, uh, that have enabled us to spend millions, or and, and really, i got to say billions of dollars on, on lawyers and lobbyists. And most of the lobbying that gets done in, in Washington is related to gaming. So whether it's federal recognition so somebody can do gaming or whether it's it's land you know uh, uh, land acquisition for gaming or whether it's you know trying to pressure different things that happen at the at the federal level as it relates to the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act and of course a lot of its uh, our efforts have fallen on deaf, deaf ears the Seneca Nation here has been involved in gaming since 2002 that's George Bush that's George W Bush so there's been George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and now Joe Biden. This, this will be the fourth administration where there has not been anything adequately done at the federal level to change um, the, how IGRA operates. And, and when I say change, I don't mean rewrite the law. The law is kind of clear. But let me, let me back up on that, as a matter of fact, because one of the things— that people should know is one of the, uh, one of the provisions of IGRA was that if a state would not negotiate in good faith with us for for a gaming compact, which which IGRA requires, I'm not saying we required it, but to operate gaming under the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, it was required that uh, that there be a, a a state native gaming compact. Well, if a state doesn't want to do that. In IGRA, it said, well, the, 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 the native territory or the native peoples could, uh, could sue the state and force them into, into negotiations. Well, Florida challenged that, and they won. And so this whole provision of, uh, of a federal law um, creating an avenue for a native territory or native peoples to sue a state was stripped from, from IGRA, and nothing got put in its place. So the very provision that was supposed to safeguard this notion of bad faith from the states uh, and supposed to pre prevent that or give us some recourse was, was taken and nothing was put back in its place. Nobody ever said, well, if the state won't, ne won't negotiate a gaming compact, we will set up an office within the Interior Department or the Bureau of Indian Affairs and you can, we, you can have, uh, enter into a gaming compact with the federal government if, that's, if that was going to be adequate. No, there was nothing. There were no other provisions put in there. And to make matters worse, not only did that recourse gets stripped away but the willingness of the interior department to do its job as it related to revenue sharing is also something that evaporated under the terms of igra a state cannot force a native territory to pay revenue to them they, they can't tax gaming within igra they did say well you you can enter into a revenue sharing agreement if the state provides a concession to you that has value a quantifiable value, and you want to pay a value for what the state has conceded to you, then we'll allow that. But it has to be done on a quid pro quo. They're giving you something of value, and you're giving them something of value in return. And if it's not that, then it's a, then it's a tax, and that's prohibited by uh, uh, by the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. And it's the Interior Department who's supposed to enforce that. Not only have they not enforced that, but what the other the other thing that, that's happened is the states have said, well, if you're not going to give us revenue for what we're offering you, regardless of its value, we simply won't renegotiate uh, an extension of, of your gaming compact. We 
we we won't have a gaming compact with you. And after 30 years of IGRA, we still don't know today that if a state walks away from a gaming compact, what does that even mean? Does that mean that we're shut down? Does that mean, I mean, the states can't shut us down, but does, does that mean the federal government must shut us down if a state walks away? And I argue that no, they, they don't, and no, they can't. But we can't get a straight answer out of anybody. And we have had professional white guys <laughs> asking that question, going back and forth from, from our territories, or, or, or we've flown to Washington to meet with them. We've been doing this for 30 freaking years. And we can't get an answer. So my question is, maybe the problem is the question isn't really adequately being answered, asked. So why pay these people? Why pay for these policy writers and these, uh, and these PR people and these, these lawyers and consultants and lobbyists if we haven't seen the results? And we haven't seen the results. Look, they convince us to do stupid things like donate campaign funds to, to both parties. Like, that's not a wash. Hell, when the, when the state of New York was, was trying to legalize gaming so they could compete directly against us, the lobbyists uh, to, the, to, the, to the state convinced the Senecas to donate money for their, uh, you know, for their, their vote, for, for the vote on a constitutional amendment. So when, when, when they held their, their, their vote for the a constitutional amendment, the referendum, the Seneca Nation had donated, I don't know, it was, it was you know, forty dollars or $50,000 to help the state with that campaign to create gaming to compete against us. And, and so I, I realize it doesn't make any sense, but why would that happen? Well, because these white people who do this for a living, they convinced us that it would buy political will. It would buy goodwill with the state, good freaking will with the state. So if we have, if not if we have, but if they have native people in those positions, if the federal government has Deborah Hallin at the, as the secretary of the interior and, and two other native people in, in high places in, in the Bureau of Indian Affairs, can't we talk to those native people ourselves? Do we really need white people to, that are going to somehow take our message, uh, alter it, and then carry it to them and then expect it and, and then assume that we had a conversation when we didn't. And, and I'm not saying that we've got to go to Deb Halland or any of these other people and, and, and have a whole conversation to find out where they're coming from. We need to tell them where we're coming from. Look, I, you know, I've said it before on the show here. Where we're broadcasting from, where we're recording from is the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. There is nothing legally transferring the title to this land to the United States. Let me say it again. There, there is no event. There is no document. There is no treaty. There is no negotiation. There is no uh, pursuit of the federal government to say, oh yeah, we want our land to be yours. And, and I'm saying this, you know, the, uh, not, the Senecas never did this. And in fact, none of our territories did, did that. The Canandaigua Treaty, which I'm not a fan of, and I, and I have to qualify it every time, but it's, it says three times in the Canandaigua Treaty that the United States recognizes, recognizes that our land is ours and they will never claim the same, nor will they interfere with the free use and enjoyment of our lands or interfere with, with, our, with our friends and allies who, uh, who live amongst us. 
There's a treaty that the federal government negotiated. They added that language. They didn't. We didn't add that language. And it's mentioned three times. I mean, there's only nine articles of the of Canandaigua Treaty, and three of them say the same thing: that the United States recognized that our land is ours, that we own the land. And the United States will never claim the same. Well, if the United States doesn't claim it, New York State sure as hell isn't claiming it. And nothing since 1794 has changed. There's never been a transfer of title. It just doesn't exist. So is it wrong to tell Deborah Hallen we're not part of the United States? And in fact, I would would one-up it. I would say at some point, some of the things that have happened on our land should have required State Department approval, not just Interior Department approval. I mean, the, the big battle over the throughway, which, of course, the, the federal courts rejected, was the Seneca Nation saying the state had no authority to enter into any kind of agreement with us without, state, without federal uh, uh, involvement. And, of course, by federal involvement, they're talking about Interior Department. But I would argue if this land is not part of the United States and, and it's documented as such, then that requires State Department issues, not just Interior Department, uh, you know, involvement. But see, we don't ever have that conversation. Hell, we don't have that conversation amongst ourselves, let alone with other Native people. So this is where where we have a problem. We we have a failure to communicate. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I borrowed that line. Yeah, there is a failure to communicate here. And the failure is on us. And part of it is we're hiring people to communicate for us. We're hiring lobbying firms and, and PR firms and, you know, speech writers. We, we got all of this stuff happening and we aren't communicating our real feelings on this, our real uh, uh, sentiment on, on a, a whole variety of these issues. Look, I'm not a fan of gaming. Because it turned into a bit of a tail wagging the dog. Oh, no, not a bit. It turned into the tail wagging the dog. And, but I'll defend our right to do gaming. Part of the reason I'm not a fan of gaming is because of the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. It, it gets touted as if this, they passed this law that allowed us to do something. It's, it's completely misinterpreted. Because... They passed that law because of a Supreme Court case that, that happened in California. Again, that had nothing to do with us. It was a, a small uh, territory in California called the Cabazons that were, that were running a bingo operation that exceeded you know, um, what would be considered the high limit you know, threshold. And the state of California said you couldn't do it. it. This went through the courts, went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Cabazons and said, look, if the state's doing gaming... They can't tell Native people they can't do gaming. They can regulate their game. You regulate your gaming, they'll regulate their gaming. That's what the Supreme Court said. That was in 1988, either 87 or something like that. The immediate response was that Congress felt like we better do something because they're going to, all of a sudden, Native territories are going to be inundated with with gaming and not just high-stakes bingo. They knew that this ruling was going to affect Class 3 gaming. Their immediate concern that they expressed, I'm not saying it was the, re- the real concern, but what they said was, we got to make sure that Native people are not taken, taken advantage of by organized crime and by overly aggressive states. Now, so l- let me clear this up. The Supreme Court didn't give us permission to do gaming. They just acknowledged that we had the right. 
IGRA didn't give us the permission to do gaming. They just created parameters within federal law that, that if, if anything, it benefited vendors. It, ben it benefited, you know, uh, financiers. You know, uh, it, it benefited our, and perhaps our credit rating because we were no longer operating in a gray zone between what the, what the federal government allows and what it doesn't allow. I mean, you would think the Supreme Court's ruling would have would have cleared it right up, but because the state, because states and uh, and, and federal law still had control over vendors, or had, still had control over lenders, and still had control over you know various other you know, products and services we would need for for a world class you know gaming facility, they may not have had control over us, but they had control over them. So. Part of the reason for Native people to, to jump headfirst into uh, gaming under the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act had to do with, with the access you know, that the, to the rest of the world, really. It wasn't because we were in love with, with having to enter into a gaming compact with, with, with the state, or state of New York or any other state. So it was problematic from the start, but we did it. And you know what? It was profitable. And it was so profitable that we didn't pay attention to how much we were giving away, not only at, you know, at, at ridiculous levels when it came to, to things like you know, interest rates and that kind of stuff. I mean, look, the Seneca Nation now sits in a pretty good position. They, they have a, a fairly good credit rating. If they needed to borrow money, they could borrow money pretty cheap. But now we're coming back to this conflict because the state's revenue-sharing plan said, well, we're going to give you something of value. We're going to give you an exclusivity, which they didn't really give. And in fact, to the extent that they gave an exclusivity, it was it had no value. And, and I say that because they couldn't compete against Seneca Nation for gaming directly with Classroom Gaming because it was illegal for New York State to do it. And to the extent that they could compete against us with Class 2, they did. They, they opened up their racetracks right within the exclusivity zone. And I know I've talked about this on other shows, but I think it's important to recap some of this stuff. So the exclusivity the state offered either didn't exist because the state couldn't do gaming. They can now, but they couldn't do it at the time. And to the extent that they could do gaming that would compete against our territories with, with class two gaming, they absolutely did. And they still got paid a billion and a half dollars. And right now the Seneca nation, even with a significantly handicapped gaming uh, enterprise, that isn't producing enough revenue to, to even even carry their overhead. And I mean the nation's overhead, not the gaming overhead. They're sitting there with half a billion dollars in an account, not knowing if they're going to have to surrender it to the state of New York in a forced revenue-sharing provision of, uh, of their gaming compact. And I say forced because the view that the Senecas have had, even in a prior conflict over this, was if we don't give them money, they won't renew the compact. So even if it's not ever really said, the sentiment out there, and again, 30 years later, we still can't get clarification from the Interior Department on this. We don't know that if a state walks away from a gaming compact, if, if that means that a casino has to close. I mean, regardless of the, of the you know, hundreds of millions and millions of dollars of investment that have gone into it, regardless of the, the significance it plays in the local economy. And by the way, <laughs> the governor of the state of New York, Andrew Cuomo, 
oftentimes touts his Buffalo billion, this idea that he was going to sink a billion dollars into into Western New York for the Western New York economy. Let's be clear. The real Buffalo billion (laughs) is the billion dollars that he took out of Western New York via Seneca Gaming. Look, you you might think, well, yeah, but he took that from the Seneca Nation. Well, where do you think the Seneca Nation was going to spend that billion dollars if it didn't go to the state of New York? They would have sunk it right back in here. They took a billion dollars out of the Western New York economy and they did it through our casinos. I mean, it, it's insane, but that, that's, the, that's the reality. All right, let me get back to what, what, I was, what I was originally talking about, which is we need to be able to have this conversation with Deb Haaland, with, with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And we need to have it directly. We need to have a, a direct conversation about how we view ourselves. Because how the federal government views us, and maybe even how Deb Haaland views us, is anything but reality. But we, we make it a reality by, by conceding to this. And the idea that we don't have enough confidence, look, I've talked about our inferiority complex. I've talked about the role of systemic racism. But when you become the victim of this kind of oppression and this kind of racism for so long, you start to believe it. You start to believe that you're inferior that they are the master race, that those are the people with all the money and those are the people with all the power and they are all the people with all the wisdom and all the words and all the laws. And we don't have enough confidence in ourselves to say, I need to communicate with you directly. You need to hear the words coming out of my mouth, not the words coming out of, you know, out, out of some lobbying firm's mouth. And our issues with the federal government are not legal issues. They're political issues. So in order to advance our politics and our agenda, we need to have diplomacy, not litigation, not lobby. We don't need to lobby for new laws. Most of the existing laws, even the laws that are credited with having some benefit, Indian Child Welfare Act, Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, uh, you know, um, uh, the Violence, uh, Violence Against Women's Act, most of these have provisions that still manage to to marginalize us. I mean, part of the reason we have such violence against our women from non-natives is because they aren't, those charges are never prosecuted because they're in, they're in areas that the, that the police don't want to go. <clears throat> so the, even though we have in many of our territories, <clears throat> courts and police departments or, or some sort of peacekeeping marshals in, in the case here, the federal government's always ignored and or refused to uh, acknowledge that we have the right to protect our own territories, that we, that we must rely on them to prosecute. We must rely on them to convict. We must rely on them to serve and protect us. That's not recognizing sovereignty. And this is where that whole word, the difference between what they call tribal sovereignty and what the rest of the world calls sovereignty are, seem to be miles apart. So we need to have some of these tough conversations and we need to have them with, with the people, regardless whether they're native or not. I'm just saying that if there's native people in those positions, we should at least give them enough benefit of a lot of doubt that they can understand the words coming out of our mouths and that we don't have to frame it within the context of, of the systemic racism that goes along with, with lobbying and, uh, and, and, and the like we need to have more control over our messaging i i I talk a lot about identity here our identity is meaningless if we aren't willing to talk about who we are and what we are and i can't believe that we have become 
a people who think so poorly of ourselves that we don't think we can communicate directly. I mean, and I, and I know as we've seen, especially in, in the, in the, in the last decade or so, as activism has, has increased over things like the Dakota Access Pipeline, you know, and even Black Lives Matter and some of these social justice issues, we're seeing people being empowered because their voices out of the grassroots community seem to be hitting, hitting the target much more accurately than any of the leadership. The leadership, not only are, do they feel ill-equipped to speak, but they are, they are enlisting somebody else to speak for them. Look, there is no reason that we aren't more transparent with, with ourselves, with each other, in the community, from, from leadership down to the, to the grassroots level. And there's no reason that the leadership or, or those who, who, who have been empowered to carry our voices don't actually carry our voices. I mean, part of the thing to, 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 to say to these elected officials in Washington or Albany is that my people don't accept this. You don't have to say what you accept. You, you can say, my people won't accept this. They won't accept being extorted for another billion dollars from New York State on, uh, you know, on this fraudulent concept of revenue sharing when the Interior Department is supposed to enforce uh, uh, the restriction on, uh, restrictions on that. And, and like I said, it's hard for me to get excited about a, a Biden administration because there, was two, there, were, there were two terms of, of Obama-Biden. When the Seneca Nation was in the throes of a major conflict over, over revenue sharing. And the Interior Department was a no-show. Now, this is what I will say. My understanding is that Deb Hallen has gaming experience. I, one of the, the, you know, the only jobs or work that she did on behalf of Native people had to do with one of their gaming corporations. And by the accounts that I read, she was successful at it. New Mexico is one of those states that has been extorting revenue sharing out of native, uh, native gaming operations. So she should know the subject matter. Now, I don't know if she's on the state side of this, which would be really troubling, but we should know that. But we should tell her what our position is and what our expectation is of the Interior Department as it relates to enforcing laws against the states. The very states that they claimed IGRA was concerned about, the aggressive states, the ones who were going to try to take us to the cleaners on our, on our own gaming. Look, the Seneca Nation needs that half a billion dollars more than the state does. I'll say it again. Half a billion dollars to the state, they go through that in a couple of days just in Medicare. So that half a billion dollars is huge when it comes to, to operating the Seneca Nation. And, and to be clear... There's, a, there's an absurdity, a whole other issue here associated with uh, the difference between our view and the, and the federal government's view. We don't tax here. We, we don't charge a tax. And we don't pay income tax to the Seneca Nation. Or, or, and we, we are constantly fighting, you know, not so much New York State, but we're certainly fighting the federal government. The federal government has another law they want to, you know, that they keep trying to dangling on, uh, dangle out in front of us. The, the General Tribal Welfare Exclusion Act. I heard, I heard Biden bring this up the other day. Like this was some real gift to us. And this is them saying, well, we're going to allow certain benefits you get from your nation not to be considered taxable. How about none of the stuff we get and we do on our territory should be taxable? Again, remember what I said about our land? There is no place in U.S. history or U.S. law 
that says we gave that right to them to tax us for, for, for the sale of our labor, for our income? How crazy is it that if you sit on, on Seneca Council, so you're, you're a member of the community, you're a citizen by, by, by some uh, definitions of the Seneca Nation, you live on Seneca Nation, you work for your nation and the service of your people, and yet the federal government is entitled to, be to, to 25 to 30% of your income? We need to have this conversation. And trust me, we haven't had a lobbyist or a lawyer carry that message to Washington or Albany or anyplace else. Look, if there was ever a time to fire lobbyists, it should be now. If for no other reason, and there are many of them, it's because those are native people. We should be able to talk to them directly. We don't need white people to translate for us. So this is, this is something we need to consider. And as skeptical and cynical as I may be about these native people who, who reach these levels of achievement within the federal government system, I think we can at least talk to them. I just don't want to ask them for something. I just need to tell them something. That's my, that's my message for the program. Hey, this is our new 30-minute uh, 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 format. Um, we're on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday that we release new audio. Um, so look for us then. Subscribe. Subscribe to our podcast, and, uh, and you don't need to come to us. We'll come to you. Look forward to ha having more of these conversations. Thanks for listening. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Yahweh.